Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Cam Howie, and I have the pleasure to be today's moderator. I would like to first welcome everybody to SACPA, and just a quick reminder to please turn off your cell phones right now. This talk and Q&A will be recorded and available on SACPA's website. Shaw Spotlight also records SACPA presentations on their daily broadcasts, and it will be made available on YouTube later on. And we also have other media uh, attending today as well, so we'll definitely get our message out and across. Uh, remember to please place the $14 for lunch, or $2 if you're just having coffee, into the bowl on your table. And then if someone from each table could also please count and verify the amount in each bowl before SACPA collects the bowls at 12.30. The format for today will be uh, 25 to 30 minutes each for the presentation, lunch, and the Q&A. We will finish around 1.30. It is now my pleasure to introduce today's moderator, Markham Hislop. Markham is an energy journalist and publisher for Energy News. Over the last five years, Markham has probably reported more and the energy transition than any other North American journalist. The title of Markham's presentation today is The New Alberta Advantage, Technology Policy and the Future for Oil Sands. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Thanks, Cam, and thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for inviting me here today. I, uh, I always like to come back to Lethbridge. I actually have a bit of a connection to Lethbridge. Back in, after I finished high school, which, 1977, it was a while ago, uh, I grew up in a little town in northern Manitoba, and I thought that I would get out and see the world a bit, and I had an uncle, aunt and uncle, who lived in Tabor, and so they got me a job in Tabor. It was 1978, and I came out here, and uh, every Saturday, of course, Tabor was not much bigger than the town I grew up in, so we would go out to the bright lights and big city of Lethbridge, get on our velvet suit and go dance the disco in the, in the Lethbridge disco. So I have very pleasant memories of Lethbridge in the year I spent in uh, southern Alberta. What I want to talk to you about today, and it's kind of tied into that story, I guess, is that uh, I've written a book called The New Alberta Advantage Policy or Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands. And the message for Alberta is that change is coming and it's coming quick, and it's going to change the way we do a lot of things. It's going to change the, the workplace, but it's particularly going to change the oil and gas sector. And so what I'm going to talk to you about today in half an hour, because I haven't got a lot of time, we're going to talk about the big, the global picture, then we're going to talk about the upstream in oil and gas, primarily the oil sands, the midstream, I'm going to tell you a few stories about Trans Mountain expansion and why that pipeline is really stalled. Then we're going to talk about the downstream. We're going to talk about petrochemicals and partial upgrading in the future, uh, where we're going with non-combustion use of, of oil and gas. And then we're going to talk about the workplace. Because if you're working, if you have children or grandchildren that are in the workplace, this is information that you probably want to know. So. We are 20, about by my estimation, and not everybody agrees on this number, but about 20 years into an energy transition. The transition is from fossil fuels to electricity generated by low carbon technologies like wind and solar and hydro and tidal and, and so on. We've been through energy transitions before. This is not entirely new. And scholars have talked about the silly things like the transition from dung to 
whale blubber and, and from coal to petroleum and all of that. So we know, we know a lot about energy transitions and they generally take 50 or 75 or 100 years. They're very long, long run transitions or uh, processes. This one may not be that long or it may be longer. It's very uncertain because what we're doing is we're basically changing the global energy system, we're transforming it, and we're doing it at such a colossal scale on a global level that, and we're doing it with, instead of commodities like whale blubber or coal or petroleum, we're doing it with technologies, and that changes everything. So what we might see is we might see peak oil demand as early as 2025, according to McKinsey and Company. Another reputable con uh, consulting company called Wood McKenzie thinks that it could be 2036. Suncor, Canada's biggest integrated energy company, thinks it's probably 2040. Whenever it is, it's going to be in the near future and it's going to have very, we're basically seeing the beginning of the end of oil. And we might, in the book I talk about how it could be uh, that timeline could be compressed from 100 years to 30 years to 40 years to 50 years, depending on how fast we adopt electric vehicles, how fast battery storage improves, uh, how, what China does. China is very important to all of this because they've be decided to become the Detroit of electric vehicles. And if they do what they did to, with electric vehicles, what they did to solar panels, which is drive down the cost by 85% from 2008 to 2014, things are gonna change in a hurry. So it's, this is a time of rapid change. The 2020s are going to be a decade of very, very rapid technological change. And it's not just the energy technologies. Oh, and another point I wanted to make is this transition is driven not by, primarily, not by policy because policy is enacted by governments and governments, as we all know, can change and enact new policies. This transition is driven primarily by technology, which means that it's capital, markets, and consumers that are driving it. And there are hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars every year invested in battery research or EV manufacturing or whatever it is, or literally, thousands and thousands of new energy technologies that have climbed up onto the adoption curve and are making their way into the market. We're at the very early stage of that, so we see that maybe you know, solar and wind might have 5% of, of uh, electricity of the market in, in places like the United States, uh, whereas, but there are lots of technologies that you haven't seen, that you don't see, that are in you know, uh, power grids, for instance. All of those technologies are working their way into the market and are going to have a profound effect over the next 10 to 20 years. But there's another set of technologies that's coming along, and they're here now. And those are going to transform the energy business model profoundly. And I'm talking about digital technologies, primarily uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation, those kinds of things. So what we see on the upstream side, for instance, uh, Suncor last year announced that it was going to replace all 150 of its, auto, of its uh, big ore haulers in, uh, in its mines in northern Alberta, and they were all going to be automated. 
So instead of 450 to 500 drivers driving these big trucks around the mines, you're going to have two guys sitting in a trailer looking at computer screens. And that's not the only example. I interviewed a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, CEOs of uh, drilling companies, so beaver drilling and precision drilling, and these folks are at the forefront of, uh, rig of uh, oil, and well oil and gas well drilling technology. And what they told me is the rigs that you see running around, around Lethbridge in southern Alberta, uh, in short order, those are all going to be automated. So instead of having six people working on the rig and two guys down on the, on the floor and another guy up at the top handling the pipe, all of that is going to be done by machines. And the computer and the software are so much more accurate than humans are that you will have two guys sitting in a, in a trailer supervising the computer and the software to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and everything else will be done basically by the machinery. Now in this particular case, jobs probably won't be lost because the CEOs told me that as machinery becomes more sophisticated and complex, it requires more maintenance and repair. So this is an example where instead of losing jobs, jobs become different. But the basic principle is out of that, the digital technology is people, are, we're going to change from people doing things to people supervising machinery and software doing the things. And so that may not affect many people in this room, but your kids and your grandkids, that's going to be a profound change. And that's, that's what's coming in the very near future. So there's a professor down at Stanford University in California that I interviewed named David G. Victor, and he talks about the tsunami of innovation. And I, I like that, that metaphor of the tsunami because every, every time there's a tsunami, there's what they call a drawback. So for approximately 12 minutes, the water recedes from the beach, kind of gets sucked out four or 500 yards or whatever it is, and You've got 12 minutes until that tsunami hits once the water starts getting receding from the beach. And Alberta right now is standing on the beach scratching its head wondering where the water went. That's, this is a serious problem because the, the, the issues that I've talked about in the, in the book are not, I'm a, as a journalist, I'm not an expert. I interview experts. And I interviewed approximately 150 expert sources for this book. Many of them were international experts, people in the United States or Europe. I interviewed some of the, the uh, uh, Alberta's uh, best and brightest, people like uh, Kent Fellows at the School of Public Policy. These are all people who are really know, their, know the industry. And I interviewed, I interviewed the Premier, I interviewed uh, your, one of your MLAs here, Shannon Phillips, many times. Uh, interviewed uh, oil sands companies, executives. So this is not me talking, it's not my opinion about what I think will happen. This is what the experts think is going to happen and it's going to happen very quickly. So let's talk about first on the upstream side, on the production side. So we've talked about, well, let me go back. Uh, late 2014, in a little Italian restaurant in, Cal in Calgary, I think it was September, there was an extraordinary meeting took place between five oil sand CEOs. So we're talking about Steve Williams from Suncor and Murray Edwards from CNRL and uh, Brian Ferguson from Sonovas and a couple of others and five executive directors from environmental groups. 
And the two co-chairs on the industry side was Dave Collier, the former CAP CEO. And on the environmentalist side was everybody's favorite demonized uh, activist, Zipporah Berman. And over the court, the reason they were meeting is because the industry executives had gone to Dave Collier and said, Dave, we're really tired of getting beaten up in the media, and we're tired of being dirty oil and all that kind of nonsense, and we want to see if we can come to a rapprochement, detente with, with these environmentalists. Do we have common ground? So they, they met in this restaurant, and they discovered that even though they had some very significant differences, they were, in fact, they did have a lot of common ground. And one of the reasons is because the oil sands companies are really the visionaries of the Alberta oil patch. They have been preparing for a low carbon future for the last decade. They started, uh, they started discussing climate change over a decade ago. They've been supporting carbon pricing over a decade ago. These are people who are really plugged into what's going on on the international stage. And they don't see climate change as a bad thing, they see it as a business opportunity. And so they met, so they met with these folks, and over the course of nine months or so, they hammered out an agreement. And what they agreed to was carbon pricing on a provincial level, so that's the stuff that you guys pay, pay. carbon pricing for the industry, the large emitters program, the 100 megaton oil sands emission cap. That came out of that meeting between the environmentalists and the executives. Now I know Jason Kenney has said that in fact that was a, I think he put it, dreamt up by the Notley-Trudeau alliance or something. That is not what happened. I've interviewed executives and I, all, almost all of the people that were in those meetings, I can tell you authoritatively that they came out of those meetings and what they did is in September of 2015 they met with Shannon Phillips uh, in her office in the legislature and they said uh, uh, Madam Minister we have had these meetings and so you see in front of you environmentalists and CEOs and here is what we agreed to and Shannon Phillips looked at them and said are you crazy? Are you not? You really are going to agree to a 100 megaton emissions cap? Suncor, Sonovas, CNRL, you really? What they said was, we think if we're going to make progress on this, we need a big, bold step. And this is it. This is what we, we've agreed to. And the uh, interviewed Arlene Strom, who is the VP of Sustainability at Suncor, and she said, the 100 megaton emissions cap is our faith in our ability to innovate, to develop new technologies that will bring down our emissions and bring down our costs and make us competitive in markets, in the Asian markets, as they adopt carbon pricing and restrictive climate policies over the next five to ten years. So all of this carbon stuff that you hear about that's become so unpopular, the oil sands don't see it as an imposition they see it as a tool to make them more competitive than their competitors like Venezuela and Mexico, Iran, Brazil, and so on, that are in that 10 million barrel a day heavy crude oil market, but are not decarbonizing. So the idea from the oil sands point of view is if I take carbon out of the barrel in Alberta, by the time my crude oil gets to China and India, 
and has a carbon tax applied to it, I pay no carbon tax, whereas my competitors have to pay a carbon tax. And that is why they're doing what they're doing. And the reason they came up, they, they sat down with those uh, environmentalists, came up with the deal, which then the Notley government enshrined in the Climate Leadership Plan, is because there is no production cap. That was the deal. It was a quid pro quo. We will agree to take carbon out of the barrel. You agree not to ever restrict our ability to increase production out of the oil sands. That's why the oil sands CEOs shook hands and with you know, the Premier on that deal. That is a story that isn't told very much. I, I didn't break that story. It was, it was broken uh, back in 20, a couple of years ago. But I'm certainly the one that's developed that story and interviewed more of the players in it. And so I can say with you know, some confidence that that's what these companies are doing. So that's, that's where we're at on the upstream side, is where the oil sands companies, they make up, they produce 80% of Alberta's oil, and that by 2040, that'll be 90 or 95%. That's where all the growth in oil production is, is coming, is from the oil sands. And they are pivoting towards that low carbon future. They see it as a strategic advantage. So now let's talk about pipelines. I see I've, I've gone a little bit over, uh, over time, so I'm going to have to hustle along here. Trans Mountain expansion. Uh, we, the reason why Trans Mountain expansion is delayed is because Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney basically took some bait from the BC government. So let me explain how that worked. Uh, once the BC NDP took power in June of 2017, they were opposed, unalterably opposed to Trans Mountain expansion. And in the spring of 2018, there was a meeting uh, where uh, George Heyman, the environment minister, was meeting, uh, they were doing budget estimates. It was a very innocuous meeting, there was nothing special about it, but the liberal MLA started ribbing him about TMX and finally he lost his temper and he, he told them that when they formed government in 2017, they were given a legal opinion that they could not stop the project. Their government said what all of us in, uh, who write about this stuff know and interview constitutional experts know is only the federal government has exclusive jurisdiction over interprovincial pipelines. As soon as a pipeline crosses a border, it becomes the federal government's responsibility and it cannot be stopped by a provincial government, not BC, not any other government. But that's not what they told British Columbians. So what were these guys playing at? Well. Once they realized they couldn't stop it in court or they couldn't stop it uh, with their own jurisdiction, what they decided to do was expand their jurisdiction and kind of crowd into the federal government's jurisdiction and create conflict, which is what they did in January of 2018. They announced, remember that uh, um, regulation they were going to go out and consult on where they were going to restrict Dilbit, the flow of Dilbit and pipelines through BC? And that then Rachel Notley uh, imposed the, the, the wine ban, couldn't sell BC wines in, in Alberta anymore, canceled uh, $500 million of electricity contracts, and it was just every day it was in the, it was in the front page of, of the newspapers. In April, Kinder Morgan came out and said, okay, that's it, we're not spending any more money uh, on this project, you guys have to sort this out. 
And here's what's really important. They said, we are prepared to undertake the risks that normally come with doing a pipeline project in the modern environment. So uh, protests and litigation, every pipeline in North America is protested and litigated, even in the states. If it crosses the border, gets protested and litigated. What they said was, we are not prepared to accept the political risk that comes along with intergovernmental jurisdiction. Horgan and Heyman won. Basically what they did is they sucked Alberta into a big fight with them and the conflict in that dispute then created too much uncertainty for Kinder Morgan and Kinder Morgan said, I'm out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. Now Justin Trudeau still had options at that point. You remember the pipeline summit where Horgan, uh, Notley, and they met Trudeau in, in uh, I think it was April of 2018 in Ottawa? After that meeting, Trudeau came out and said, I will, I will introduce legislation to assert federal authority and jurisdiction over pipelines. Two days later, Quebec uh, released a letter from, through CBC and said, uh, no, Mr. Prime Minister, we, uh, we really don't want you to do that. We think that that is a bad precedent and uh, asserting fed exclusive federal jurisdiction, we are not in favor of that. Well, oops, that's a big problem for Trudeau because he has a lot of seats in Quebec. But the real kicker here, where he really failed, was, um, I, I, does anybody here know the three functions of the National Energy Board? It's rhetorical, folks. I, I don't expect anybody to know. The NEB regulates, it does environmental assessments for new pipeline projects, and it's a superior court whose decisions can only be appealed to the Federal Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. And so what, um, it has all the authority to put the BC government in its place and to frustrate all of this obstructionism that Horgan has been doing for the last almost two years. So why didn't Justin Trudeau go to the, the parliament, introduce a bill, amend the NEB Act and give the NEB Act the processes, the powers it needed to do that? Well, a friend of mine who is it was working in one of the minister's offices at the time told me why, and it's very simple. The, federal, the Liberals ran in 2015, they ran against the NEB. They said the NEB was captured, they said the NEB was broken, it needed to be reformed, and they couldn't bring themselves in 2018, they couldn't bring themselves to use the NEB to fix a problem because it created too many political issues for them in places like Vancouver or Quebec or wherever. The only option at the end after that was to buy the pipeline. So Trudeau painted himself into a corner. Now, these things happen, right? I mean, governments make mistakes and, and so Horgan outsmarted our politicians a little bit and, and Trudeau made a mistake with the NEB and then he went on and made another mistake with indigenous consultations and that had to be all redone. T but you can take it from me, TMX will be built because it has become a proxy for the integrity of the Canadian regulatory system. That when the Canadian government says yes, does it mean a yes or does it mean a maybe? Or does it mean the government can get pushed off a yes decision? And literally hundreds of billions of dollars of investment over the next 10 years are weighing on that, on that decision. So if TMX doesn't get built, investors lose confidence, 
and the Canadian economy is in big trouble. So you, you heard it here first. TMX will be built even if the, they have to call in the army and cars already threatened that three or four years ago. So, so that's, we are, uh, pipelines are far and away the biggest policy-induced cost for Alberta. So when we see, you know, uh, low prices and people being laid off and all of that, the policy decisions that most affect that are not emissions regulations, they're not red tape, they're not, what they are is the lack of pipeline capacity to get our oil out of the province. We're currently about 200,000 barrels a day short. We've got more production coming on. It's going to get worse before, much worse before it gets better. And I'm sorry that I have to bring that news to you, but that is more than likely the circumstance. Keystone XL down to the States is already looking at another delay of a year. Uh, line 3 out to, um, uh, down into uh, the U.S. through Min or east, our eastern markets through Minnesota. The, the Minnesota Utility Commission decided to delay issuing permits another 6 to 12 months, so now we're not going to see that completed until 2020. So between T TMX, KXL, and Line 3, all of them have been delayed far, far longer than we had expected. And that's going to cause ripple problems. It's going to ripple through the Alberta economy. And probably we're going to have another tough year or two until that market access issue gets sorted out. Which is one of the reasons why Rachel Notley's purchase of 120,000 barrels a day of rail capacity actually looks good now. Because we're going to need every drop of pipeline capacity and shipping capacity we can, we can get. So now I want to talk quickly about, downturn, about sorry, downstream. So, yeah, a downturn on the brain. So, uh, as it turns out, uh, this will come as no great shock to you, uh, India and China, are their middle classes are growing rapidly, and they like stuff as much as we like stuff. And that means more plastic production. And that means more petrochemical production. So, Wood McKenzie in its study estimated that uh, between now and 2036, Petrochemical expansion alone will grow the market for oil by 6 million barrels a day, which is quite substantial. Now, over the last decade, uh, oh, and by the way, I should mention that Alberta has the second largest petrochemical cluster in all of North America. We're only, the only one that's bigger is the U.S. Gulf Coast cluster. And over the last decade, the U.S. Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast petrochemical cluster attracted $185 billion of investment. Alberta got four, just four. So why is that? The, EDAC, the Energy Diversification Advisory Committee wrote a report, submitted it to the government, and in that document you'll see that the U.S. Gulf Coast has an advantage over Alberta of about 10 to 15 percent on capital costs. So that's all the money you spend up front building your plant. But we have about a 5% advantage over the U.S. Gulf Coast on operating costs. So once you get a plant built, we can compete very well with, those, with the Texans and the Louisianans uh, once it's built on operating. So what the government did is it brought in the petrochemical diversification program to provide royalty credits to companies to kind of make the bridge that capital cost. And already in the last year, uh, there's been uh, $12 billion of investment announced. 
And uh, some of it's final investment decisions, I think about uh, six or seven or eight, or eight billion, and some of it's uh, initial that we'll see a final investment decision next year. So when I, I interviewed Rachel Notley for my book, and I was sitting across from her and I said, uh, Premier, we know that the oil sands, uh, the oil and gas direct employment is likely to either stay stagnant or continue to drop. Uh, we lost 52,000 direct jobs after 2014. Only 6,000 of those are forecast to come back by 2021. Exact same process going on in Texas, by the way. This is in uh, oil sectors across the world. Workers are more productive. We need less workers to produce the same amount of oil. So I asked her, uh, Premier, do you see th the downstream, the petrochemical sector and the partial upgrading sector as offsetting the job losses in the oil sands? Is it, in fact, the new oil sands? And she said, yes, that's very much the strategy. So the oil sands, the oil and gas employment, and especially the, remember that old model? Probably many of you know people, or maybe you did it yourself, where you got out of high school and you went and worked on a rig and you worked your way up through the oil company and you had a job and you raised a family, paid a mortgage, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's a, that's a, a model that Alberta knows well, especially rural Alberta. Well, it's dead. It, it's, not, it's not coming back. The juniors that used to employ a lot of those people, you could get you know, four guys, uh, management team together, raise a couple million dollars from, from friends and family and go out and start an oil company and then get bought out five or 10 years down the road. Now you need 100 million. And the, the industry is, is uh, consolidating. So the big companies like the oil sands companies, CNRLs and so on are buying up the little guys. The little guys are bleeding red ink. It's really desperate out there. If you're a small a junior or a mid cap, you've either failed or you're probably losing money. And that's why a lot of them oppose the climate policies and other kinds of regulation because if you add one nickel of compliance cost onto a barrel of oil, now you're just one nickel more per barrel that you've lost money on. So I, I understand perfectly why those companies oppose some of those and why, on the other hand, the oil sands companies, and Suncor made $1.8 billion of profit in the third quarter last year. So what we've got is basically an old oil patch that's hurting a lot and is, on the, is kind of on the decline. It's at very, the very best it can do over the next decade is, or two is be stagnant. And all the growth is coming from the oil sands companies, and they've got a, that policy that Notley brought in basically is their policy. It's meant to support them and foster growth in their sector. And they're going to do very well. They don't have any problem attracting capital. So uh, I've come to the end of my chat. I'm happy to uh, take some questions and hopefully provide some intelligent answers after lunch. And I know everybody wants to get to lunch, so I'll thank you very much. Appreciate it.